focused on really identifying and embracing your authentic self. And I truly believe that once you do lead a true, real, authentic life, you will be an effective communicator. It's easier to quiet the imposter voice. You are more likely to set and hold boundaries and say no at work and avoid the burnout. It is the common theme and the common denominator for all of those topics. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Our guest today is a full-time senior legal editor at Thomson Reuters and a professional speaker who draws on her 17 years of experience as both an attorney and storyteller to help professionals find and embrace their true, authentic selves. Please welcome our next lawyer who leads and founder of JMT Speaks, Jennifer Thibodeau. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Hi, Seagull. Thank you so much for having me. You did tell me right before this recording that you do listen to the podcast. Do you know what my first question to you will be? I believe you're going to ask me for a little slice of life and to share what I am most grateful for today. Did I get it right? You really did. And by the way, that's the first time that I've ever done that. Usually I give people a heads up, but I'm honored. I'm honored that you listen. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to have you. So yes, tell us, what is your gratitude and slice of life? Sure. So I'm glad I didn't fail, by the way. My my gratitude for the day, I'd say the best thing that's happened to me so far is when my six-year-old son was leaving for school, he stopped, turned around, and hugged me. And he told me this inside joke that we have. It always makes us laugh. And we laughed, and then he left for school with my husband. So That is a moment that is pretty hard to beat, and that was the best part of my day. And let me tell you why, by the way, I remember this is your first question. I am a huge believer in the power of gratitude. I know the listeners can't see us, but I'm wearing all these bracelets that you can see, and one of them actually says grateful to remind me to make sure I find things that I can show gratitude for every day. So I love that that is the first question in your podcast, and that is why I remember it. Love that gratitude of this inside joke with your six-year-old son. I forget about inside jokes, and once Mm. in a while, my kids will tell jokes, and I forget that they're like beginning their journey of funny, right? (laughs) And to have that kind of connection is super cool, and it's a good reminder for me to insert a little bit more of that in my relationships with my children. So thank you, and what a wonderful thing to have all of these bracelets to remind you of things. What else on there really is a great reminder for you or that you tend to look at? So uh, you probably won't be surprised to hear that the bracelet that says grateful is right next to one that has my initials, my husband's initials, my son's initials. And then I have words or mantras that are meaningful to me. I'm the godmother to my beautiful five-month-old niece. So I have godmother one. I have one that says manifest so that I can manifest the life that I want. I have one that reminds me to be present because it helps me slow down. I have one that my friends and I just bought matching, eat the pizza because pizza is life and life is short. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I also have my wedding date because we just celebrated our 15 year anniversary and the traditional gift is crystal. So I said, why not a crystal beaded bracelet? So that's the story of my stacks. Wow. I love it. First of all, happy anniversary. Oh, thank you. And I 
very, very much want to do the same thing. I want to start having these reminders on my wrists and especially the presence one. I actually had this really great conversation with someone yesterday and she said one of the things that she does every day to ensure that she's present is that she puts an alarm on her clock that reminds her of the sunset and the sunrise. So Mm. she just takes that moment and she looks at the sky and it gives her twice a day in which she has to be present. So I thought that was really beautiful too. Oh, thank you for sharing that. I love that. How inspiring. So let's get into it. I wanted to ask you, what is your lawyer origin story? How did it all start for you? So I have wanted to be a lawyer since I was a teenager. And I confess, much like you, Seagull, I love to read and write. I know you do. I did at a young age. And I'll date myself here. When I was a preteen teenager in the early to mid-90s, what was I reading? John Grisham novels, of course. So that was my introduction to the law. And I was totally fascinated by this idea of becoming an advocate and what justice meant. At the same time, I love to write, whether it was a history paper for school or a column that I had in the school newspaper. It was called On Marino's Mind, Marino being my maiden name. And what did I write about? Whatever was on my mind. So clearly at this time period, it's what's happening on Dawson's Creek, studying to get my driver's license. <laughs> so with the urging of a history teacher, I loved Mr. Bockenheimer He knew I loved to read and write, and he encouraged me to try out for a new club he was starting called Mock Trial. Now, I was a very shy teenage girl. I lacked confidence. So this totally could have gone one of two ways for me, but it's probably obvious which way it went. It allowed me, when I played the role of a lawyer, to truly come out of my shell. And I will never forget what it felt like to stand before this jury box because we competed at the courthouse after hours and deliver this opening statement. It was like a spark that just lit this fire in my belly that has really been burning ever since. So that was it for me. I went right from college to law school. I clerked for a judge for a year And then I joined the firm that became my home for 11 years, where I was an associate and then a partner. You said that once the mock trial started, despite being shy, going into the role of a lawyer really allowed you to come out of your shell. What do you think it was about going into a role of a lawyer that allowed you to feel that way? What an insightful question. And I've reflected on this a bit over the years. And I think it was because I was playing someone else. I think it's because when I had this assignment, when I had this role, literally I was playing, it wasn't really me. And it gave me a step removed from myself to give me the confidence to speak up. Also, I loved the preparation of it. So I knew I was ready. So I think that factored in as well. I think they're both interesting and important things to consider when we're nervous about putting ourselves out there. One, be prepared to uh, quote Scar from The Lion King. And then, (laughs) although not an evil thing. Right. (laughs) We are the moms of kids, right? Yeah. We're both laughing at that reference. I know. And two, you said being removed so that it didn't feel 100% 
that it was you. And I think that's really insightful because a lot of times there's a fear of failure if we don't do things the right way. I think by removing yourself and saying, you know, it's this role that is going to put themselves out there and I get to be an observer of how that works, I think is a really wonderful lesson in how we can take risks and do things that are outside of our comfort zone as an observer of the things that are happening versus feeling like, if I do this, it's going to be a reflection of my capabilities or my confidence. I think you're right. I also think that I wore my first suit. You've never seen a teenage girl more excited to wear a suit. (laughs) We were down at the county courthouse. It wasn't in the classroom. It was around other kids who were into mock trial like I was. That made it, I think, a little less daunting for me. Although, Seagal, I'll admit, I still remember the one objection that I was too nervous to make when my law partner, quote unquote, next to him saying, object, 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 you know, to the cross. And I I couldn't quite get it out. You know, I still think about that. But otherwise, it was a true lesson in learning to find my voice and use it. So you graduate from college, you graduate from law school, and then you clerked for a little bit. I did. I clerked in the New Jersey Superior Court Appellate Division for one year, which was a fantastic experience, uh, particularly in weeding out what I didn't want to do because with the nature of getting so many different appeals across your desk, for example, I loved family law in law school. It was so intriguing. But then when these cases were real, and the facts came across my desk, I thought, oh, I can never be a family lawyer. So that was a fantastic experience. And of course, a masterclass in learning how to read and write as a lawyer. It's so true. Anytime that you're focusing on something from an academic standpoint, I think it's very different than when you're seeing something in in practicality, right? Like when you really see something in, in motion. And I always tell anyone that's thinking of going to law school or that is, you know, within the law school sphere, I always tell them, try to go to clinics, try to get internships, try to get, you know, these opportunities to see how things are going into play before deciding that this is the law that you want to do. It's great advice. So you clerk and then you found Mm -hmm. your first law firm job. How did that go? Mm -hmm. Was that something that you were intentional about? Was it something that kind of you stumbled upon? How did that work out? Sure. So I was super intentional. Let's go back to that comment about me being prepared, which is just a character trait (laughs) that still lives on today. You know, there were a group of law firms. I'm in Northern New Jersey. I knew I wanted to practice here that I applied to early, but there was one firm that I had my heart set on, Gibbons PC. And when I got the offer from that firm, I accepted it immediately. I felt at home there and it was my home for 11 years. And what kind of law did you practice? I actually started my career as a criminal defense attorney, which is a little known fact because I was only formally in that group. I was assigned to that group for six months, although I held on to some cases and I continued doing some white collar work, like conducting internal investigations with the practice group leader there. But I was a commercial litigator. I focused on consumer class action defense work. I also did other types of fraud cases in New Jersey state and federal courts. One of the last cases I worked on by way of example was the Volkswagen clean diesel scandal years ago. We handled all of the New Jersey cases. So typically when people don't understand what I say when I use consumer class action defense, that is my exhibit A of the types of cases that I worked on. Yeah, that's a pretty high profile case too. It was. Yes, it was. 
A little bit of John Grisham coming back around for you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never thought of it that way. Amazing. So you made partner and you were there for 11 years. So why the change? Honestly, I realized shortly after I made partner, which had been my dream, that I had spent so much time trying to reach for and grasp the brass ring of partnership that I never stopped to ask myself important questions like, do you like this? Is this what you want to do with the rest of your life? Are you happy? And it hit me like a ton of bricks that I didn't, (laughs) I didn't like the answers to those questions, right? I realized I did not want to get the next promotion, which would have been becoming an equity partner as an owner at the firm. And that was very difficult. I went through a roller coaster of emotions. You know, I had devoted nearly 20 years of my life to trying to attain this goal, attained it. And now what am I supposed to do? I was embarrassed. I was frustrated. I was sad. And I also thought there would never be anything else that I could possibly do with my skill set. As much as I might have had bouts of imposter syndrome, I knew how to litigate. I didn't know how to do anything else. And finally, I decided I had to be brave. I had to make this bold move and leave behind what was once my dream job. I didn't like the person I had become. I mentioned I have one son. I knew that I was very burnt out and cynical and that if I wanted to be the best version of myself, I needed to untangle my identity from being a partner at a law firm and find who I really was. So I took an opportunity to join Thomson Reuters as a senior legal editor to start the New Jersey litigation component of the practical law product. And I have never looked back. I started my business three years ago, JMT Speaks, as a speaker and writer to really tell that story of how losing the plan is what made me find myself. There are so many questions I have about your journey. You mentioned that you would never really stop to ask the questions of like, do I like this? Like, Mm -hmm. why am I doing this? This is what I want to dedicate my life to. Why do you think it takes lawyers so long, if ever, to ask those kind of questions? Such a great question, Seagal. And I can only speak for myself. And I think it's because I wasn't present in my own life. I think it was because always billing the hours, getting this assignment done, moving on to the next assignment. And aside from not being present, I'll admit I'm a bit of an achievement junkie, right? A lot of type A types become lawyers. So I always liked you know, winning or getting something done and checking off the boxes. And I never really stopped to look at the big picture. So that's, that's my personal experience. It's probably not unique, but as I said, I could speak for myself. To me, the biggest takeaway is be aware of the milestones that you're going for, right? Mm -hmm. Like reassess that path every now and then. Yeah. Because it was, well, what's next? I made partner. What's next? Oh, equity partner. And then I was like, wait a second. I can't possibly imagine doing this for another 5, 10, 20. I mean, I was 34 years old when I made partner 30 plus years of my life. And that was the wake up call. The other thing that you said was feeling cynical, feeling burned out. Was this like just kind of building or was there like a moment for you, like something specific that you can look to that kind of triggered this thought process? 
it honestly wasn't a moment. I had this, let's say, realization about not wanting to reach that next milestone shortly after I achieved partner, but I didn't know what to do with it. I just had all of these feelings. I mentioned I was on this roller coaster, right? And then I got pregnant with my son. And that, of course, makes you ask a lot of big questions. And he's born. And I was only back at work for about four months before I left. I guess you could say maybe that was the thing. Maybe it was the straw that broke the camel's back. That was like the realization of you haven't liked yourself in so long. You haven't recognized yourself. And by the way, how you identify yourself is as a partner at a law firm when you are so many other things. You know, you're a mom, you're a wife, you're a daughter, you're a sister, you're a friend. And I realized I wanted to find my worth as well outside of being a law firm partner. So it was a slow burn, I think, for about two and a half years. And then becoming a mom was like, you need to be the happiest, best version of yourself. What you're saying reminds me of a podcast I listened to called The Happiness Lab. It's by, I believe it's a Yale professor. But one of the things that she says that I think you really hit upon is you have to diversify your identity. And so at the end of the day, you are not just one thing. Just in economic standards, you shouldn't be just investing in one thing, right, in the stock market. You should be diversifying your portfolio. Same thing with your identity. Diversify your identity. So if you don't want to be a lawyer anymore, you still have all these other things that you have going on. And I think Mm -hmm. that's a big part of this courageous decision that you made, which is like untangling yourself from this one identity and really saying, I'm more than this. Yeah. And I like that you use the word courage because it wasn't until somebody else said that to me at the time that I realized that I needed to give myself credit for actually being brave enough to leave because I was very scared. What are other people going to think? Are they going to say that I am absolutely crazy? Are they going to say that I'm giving up my career or that I am a new mom and my hormones are all over the place and I don't know what I'm doing, right? So there was a lot of that that I had to let go and just say, you know what, I'm going to do this. And looking back, it did take a certain dose of courage. And I am proud of myself for that. Yeah, it is huge. A lot of the times when you're super goal oriented, and then you get to a point where you need to change that goal, it takes a lot of bravery. It's a lot easier in some respects to just keep on the path. Yes. And I am very inspired by your decision. Thank you. Yeah. So let's go on. So then you become a senior legal editor at Thomson Reuters and you also three years ago start JMT Speaks. Tell me how that all started. Sure. So I realized that there was one thing that I missed from private practice. And, and don't get me wrong, I miss the people that I work with that made it very hard to leave as well. I was part of a great team. But in terms of the practice itself, the one thing that I missed was being on my feet. Now, it won't come as a surprise when, you know, you hear that the type of cases I worked on were these big, huge pieces of complex litigation. So I wasn't in court every day, but I did go to court. I did take depositions, argue motions, have a lot of client presentations, and I missed that about practice. When I first left, I actually taught for two semesters at Seton Hall Law. I was an adjunct professor of appellate advocacy, trying to scratch that itch of, you know what, I want to be on my feet differently because my job as an editor is what it sounds like. I write and I edit for the most part. And then as I started to 
share my journey of reaching for and grabbing this brass ring, to quote myself, and then leaving it behind, I realized that it resonated with people. I wrote this essay for the New Jersey Women Lawyers Association, and I don't want to say it went viral. I don't even really know what that means, but it got a lot of traction and it spoke to a lot of people. So I thought, you know what? I loved the process of writing this. I love that it's meaningful to people. Why don't I start my own platform as a writer and a speaker to create the space that I am missing? And why not have the platform founded on authenticity? Like I said, it took me losing that plan that I had for myself to find myself. And it really was an exercise in examining my core values valuing vulnerability, letting go of what other people think. So why not write about that? Why not speak about that? And if no one listens, if no one cares, that's fine too, but I want my own space. And it was on the eve of the pandemic, which was both a blessing and a curse, of course. And it's been an amazing, fun, satisfying ride. What are some of the main topics that you speak about to others and who is your core audience? My Keynotes that I've focused on really are identifying and embracing your authentic self, avoiding burnout while staying productive, being an effective communicator, saying no and setting boundaries at work, overcoming the imposter voice, or I should say muting the imposter voice since it is, of course, very hard to actually make it uh, go away forever. And the reason I speak about those topics is because I draw on my own experience. And I truly believe that once you do lead a true, real, authentic life, all of those things come together. You will be an effective communicator. It's easier to quiet the imposter voice. You are more likely to set and hold boundaries and say no at work and avoid the burnout. It is the common theme and the common denominator for all of those topics. And you asked about my audience there's this misconception that my audience is only lawyers. And I think that's because my network organically is lawyers, but my audience is broader. I have worked with financial professionals, accountants, people in the bankruptcy space. It really truly runs the gamut of other professionals. And it's not just women. I got to tell you, Seagal, when I give my most popular talk, which is identifying and embracing your true self, doesn't matter how you identify your gender what your career is, or where you are in your career. I think the pandemic has people craving this message of living an authentic life. What are some examples of how individuals can work towards living more of an authentic life for themselves? You really have to get to know yourself. For me, you know, I'm here talking about, oh, I, I didn't like myself. I was very cynical. That's a really hard, long look in the mirror that it took me to actually get there and to be able to admit this publicly, right? It's about knowing what your values are. And once you define them, allowing that moral compass to really navigate all the decisions, big and small, in your life. For me, once I undertook that value exercise, when I was making this final decision, right, decide, am I going to accept this offer and leave behind partnership? one of the biggest law firms in the state, I realized my values had always been the same, but I had started prioritizing success and achievement above all else. I needed to reprioritize my values and redefine success. Success for me, when I was a law firm partner, you know, without children was very different than how it looks today 
as a senior legal editor, an entrepreneur, and a mom of a kindergartner, right? And I see you nodding and smiling because I know you get that too, right? Yes, I do. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a lot of questions around that that I just want to think deeply about for a second. One of the things that you said is you have to work on either letting go or being able to navigate what other people think about you. Yes. I know personally, that is something that I constantly struggle with. I'm not proud of it. It embarrasses me a little bit too, right? Same. What is some advice that you can give to people who are trying to work on that? My friends who are listening are probably smiling because they know that I'm going to say, get comfortable being uncomfortable because that is when the change occurs. I don't know about you, Seagal, but for me, a lot of that is rooted in people pleasing where it is so much easier for me to prioritize the needs and wants of others before myself, right? So if I think that someone's going to say, oh, she's crazy, or I think this about her, then I'm not going to do it, right? Because I'm so worried about what someone else is going to say or think. And that makes me really uncomfortable. But you hit the nail on the head earlier when you said it would be a lot easier if I had just stayed where I was. I have this great career. I'd be at a great firm working on great cases with people I admire and respect, but nothing would change. So it took me going outside of my comfort zone and pushing myself in a really big way, right? This creature of habit who only thought I'd do one thing with my career. And that is when the magic actually happened. So I say, push yourself. And if you are a people pleaser, just keep that top of mind. It's like put on your lawyer hat with yourself, right? It's like, do I really care what this person thinks? Or am I going to know or care about this person's opinion? You know, whether it's three, six months from now, a year from now. And I also have learned that we tend to think that everyone is worrying and talking about us when no one really is. In a way, everyone's kind of concerned with themselves. And I think like this idea of like also the big picture, right? Life is a long Mm -hmm. journey and these people come in and out of our lives. But like in the scheme of things, like you said, will I care about this person in six years or 10 years or whatever the case may be? It's just... Such a small piece of a season or a time. Exactly. I want to get into, because you really are paving the way both through your speaking, but also just sharing your experience here today. What does leadership in law mean to you? Leadership in the law to me is women supporting women. And I I know that's a bit of a narrow answer, but I would be uh, inauthentic if I didn't say that that is top of mind for me. I have been absolutely blown away the last few years with how women are lifting each other up as they rise in this profession. I have to take note of it. And we have women who are leading by example, extending a hand back to others as they are climbing this ladder, as opposed to using their foot to step on someone as they are on the way up. I have been the benefit of women supporting me in so many ways and so many examples that I couldn't name here. This is going to be a really small example, but something that has done wonders for me is having your online tribe, right? So now I have this tribe of women who support me on LinkedIn in particular. I know that's how you and I met, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the power of having someone support your post and saying, hey, I'm going to tag you here because I think you should meet this person really cannot be understated. I've had the opportunity to co-host book clubs with authors, right? Based on the power of these introductions, which led to other opportunities. And it's not all lawyers. It truly is 
other women who have championed me and I see champion each other each and every day to help each other up and lift each other up as we each rise. Beautifully put. I know that you also identify yourself as a storyteller. Can you share, because as a fellow storyteller, I'm super intrigued by this. Can you share some of your storytelling tactics that help you really ensure that you're communicating what you want to communicate to others about your message? Sure. So whenever I give a presentation, I start with a story. I am not someone who gets on the stage after being introduced and says, hi, I'm Jennifer Thibodeau. I am here to talk about avoiding burnout while staying productive. I'm so happy to have you. I say that at the end. I jump right into a story because I find that it allows the audience to become engaged and connected with me and to trust me. I'll put right out there, I am not a professional coach or anything like that. I don't you know, have any sort of communications degree. I do this based on my skill set as a lawyer and my experience. So what I want to do is create a connection with the audience and how else to do that than to tell stories. It also really breeds, I think, empathy when you hear someone tell stories and I weave stories throughout my talk. I start with my story. I typically go over some basics and then provide actionable takeaways. And each one has a story because it explains how it came to be an actionable takeaway that I'm sharing. I think it gives me credence and I think it's more engaging for the audience. Yeah. It really embraces the tool of show, don't tell. Yes. Yes. Well put. Which is an extremely powerful storytelling mechanism. So yeah, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. If there was one thing you could change about the legal industry, what would it be? I'm going to be really honest. It's the billable hour. I would love to see the profession place less emphasis on billable hours, particularly for associates and as it ties to their compensation. You can have a lawyer complete a task in 50 hours because they're efficient and did a thorough job. Maybe it takes someone else 75 hours and it just takes them 75 hours. I'm not implying that they're padding or they're slow. It just takes some people longer. But at the end of the year, if a firm is going to award bonuses based on the number of hours billed, what kind of message is that sending? And as clients, clients do need to push back and they do need to look at the timesheets as well and ask, are these numbers inflated? Why are these numbers so high? And that was something that I started to become more cognizant of as I was a senior associate and then a partner and had to deal with write-offs and timesheets. So my mind just goes there when we talk about something to change in the profession. I agree wholeheartedly. The billable hour is the foundation in which I believe a lot of mental health issues for lawyers comes from. 100% agree. I've had quite a few guests on the show that have shown different ways in which they are trying to tackle this problem in their own firm, whether mm -hmm. that is still within the billable hour sphere, but making a billable hour maximum versus a minimum mm -hmm. that is still lower than most minimums, but then also creating subscription type services. Mm. And I think whoever really solves this problem is going <laughs> to be kind of a hero to the legal industry. Definitely. Definitely. And I love how you connected it to mental health because that's really what it comes down to. It's also competition amongst lawyers who build more. Many firms, you can see how many hours each attorney built, and that is just not healthy. So 
Yeah, we, you could probably do another series of podcasts just on that if you haven't already. There's a lot of people during this part of the interviews that talk about different variations of what you're mm-hmm. saying. That would be an interesting podcast. Like, how do we solve for the billable hour? <laughs> <Yeah>. Episode one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> I know. <laughs> what is a piece of practical advice that you can give to our listeners? These are leaders and future leaders in the law. Know that your work is not your worth. When I was a practicing attorney, I thought that my worth was how many hours have I billed? What's on the timesheets? How quickly am I responding to emails? How little do I say no and set boundaries when requests are made of me? And now as you know, a full-time mom, employee, and entrepreneur, someone who's a recovering achievement junkie, it is very easy for me to get wrapped up into how much have I accomplished today? My work, my achievements are not my worth and that goes for everyone. So please remember, as you said before, I wrote down the Happiness Lab podcast is about diversifying your identity because that is how you really can define and claim your worth outside of your title and position. Yes. What a great way to end this podcast, by the way. Although I do have one more question. Let's do it. What do you do for self-care? So I actually like to start and end my day with self-care. I am naturally an early riser. So I am that annoying person who can get up at 5 a.m. and exercise because that's what fuels me both physically and mentally. And then by the end of the day, of course, I'm exhausted by nine o'clock at night. I'm an avid reader. I love to read both fiction and I do a lot of, you know, self-improvement type books as well. I try and alternate. So to me, that is my form of self-care. Wonderful. Well, I want to thank you so much for being on the show, Jennifer. If anyone wanted to reach out and connect with you, what is the best way they can do that? Oh, thank you for asking. They can always visit my website, jmtspeaks.com. They can find me on LinkedIn at Jennifer Marino Thibodeau or my company page, JMT Speaks. And I will always invite your listeners to drop me a line, jennifer at jmtspeaks.com. Thank you so much, Jennifer. I really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you, Seagal. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you, leaders and future leaders, for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry with over 1,000 verified reviews on Trustpilot. Lawyers who lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.